Good day. My name is Stefan Christoph. I'm an artist, a community activist, and a radio producer. I share programming regularly on stations around the world, as well as on two radio stations in Montreal, um, CJLO 1690 AM and CKUT 90.3 FM. I have also been sharing broadcasts through Antennas Radio. Today, I am going to be sharing with you the sounds of movements for housing justice in Montreal. Over the last months, there has been a wave of protests throughout the summer of 2023 and into the fall. There were major demonstrations to oppose new quote-unquote housing legislation in Quebec that is proposed under the Coalition Avenir de Québec, Uh, which is legislation that really has in many ways been shaped by the interests of the real estate industry. Uh, the actual minister for housing, as it's called, uh, has been shown through a committee at the National Assembly in Quebec City as having breached ethics protocol due to her relationship with um real estate companies. This is the actual minister who is fronting and promoting this bill on housing in Quebec. So this, of course, is connected to a global issue, which is tied to gentrification and the crisis of affordable housing in many cities around the world. And Montreal has seen um, an upswing in organizing, both tenant organizing and also housing justice organizing against policies that undercut the rights of tenants. In this broadcast, I will be sharing voices, music, and sounds, both from demonstrations, um, from uh, creative events, cultural events that speak to housing justice, and also music by artists that have been part of this movement uh, for housing justice, and particularly against law 31, still Bill 31, that is legislation that undercuts tenant rights in Quebec. I think it's important, of course, to see this legislation in the global context of neoliberal economics that has really pushed to commodify cities, defining the, the city streets, housing, territories, really as a space to... Um, mobilize profit for real estate industries and speculative capital as opposed to seeing cities as spaces where community happens where people um, breathe live create and thrive together uh, across income spectrums um, a lot of the groups that you'll hear as part of this broadcast have been involved also in pushing for you know, the clear set of alternatives that exist in terms of social housing, cooperative housing, and there's many other alternatives. I think squatting is a very important direct action that's been taken by a lot of uh, community activists and groups, collectives who are fighting for housing justice. So here's my broadcast uh, that I'm sharing um, here in January 2024. And you'll hear some recordings from Artists Together Against Bill 31. That is an effort that I worked on with a bunch of local artists to bring people together to support housing justice struggles and to oppose this legislation in Quebec, Bill 31. And um, you'll also hear music. So I'm really happy to share this broadcast with you. And thank you for listening. Again, I'm Stefan Christoph. I host a weekly program called Free City Radio. What you're hearing now is a special Uh, broadcast, but overall you can find my archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. I'm happy to share these sounds with you and keep it locked. Take care.
think maybe we could just start there because it is a particular moment where there's a focus on a particular proposed legislation in Quebec that will attack uh, the rights of tenants to transfer their leases. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a mechanism of solidarity between tenants that will affect a lot of people. But often the way this bill is covered, as it's almost as if it's in isolation. Um, but of course, it's bar- part of a broader quote-unquote, housing bill, which really is about attacking the right to housing in a lot of ways on the part of the CAC government here in Quebec. Um, So my first question to all of you is if you could maybe reflect on the importance of the struggle against Bill 31, but looking at it in that broader context, because you know, Bill 31 doesn't happen in isolation of municipal policy or federal policy, or in isolation of the daily community work that a lot of you are involved in. Faiz? I feel like it's tough. This bill is definitely Mm going to have Mm -hmm. a very, very adverse impact on the lives of tenants, Mm -hmm. on their communities, and on our city, and what makes our city so special. I think we all can speak to uh, some of the impacts we're, we're afraid that this bill will have. I mean, I think what I'd like to hear is like, what are we doing to organize, right? What are we doing to, to get around this? What are we doing to fight this uh, bill? Um, and yeah, I don't know. What, what are folks doing? <laughs> well, a lot. And, and, and that's, it's so great to be at a space where we can discuss those points of mobilization here at Brick Public. Um, so I'll just open it up again. Would anybody like to address this point? Yeah, maybe I, I think that, yeah. yeah, I think that uh, you're of course you're right, uh, Faiz, uh, and I, I'm really glad that you mentioned this. Like one of the uh, most terrible aspect of the housing crisis, in fact, of course, the impacts on the individual lives is big, but it's also like changing like the collective experience of the city, like the, the spaces that we share, the ambiences, the the how we could just like live without being like so so stressed and like surrounded by like condos and like expensive uh, shops and and all that and that's one of the things that emerged really from our process of research through sound often we focus on like the individual dimension but like montreal is changing and not for the best well in many ways in terms of organizing there's a new initiative well relatively new initiative called uh, the flip which is the front de libération pour un immobilier populaire I'm not sure there's an official like English translation. The meaning is pretty clear. They're actually uh, launching a campaign and the strategy right now is to do a demonstration every Thursday uh, starting at Berucam uh, Metro Square Emilie Gamelin at 6 p.m. So this is one thing they're also having like different angles of of struggle like documenting uh, what like, like the, the bad actions, but put, put it quickly of, of landlords and other aspects. But it's, it's really a grassroots and community organizing, and uh, yeah, we have to spread the word. This, this struggle, of course, has potentially to be like one of the main struggle in Montreal for the times to come. And there's also been other um, policies that have attacked housing rights under the CAC government, Coalition Avenir de Québec. There is the total cut of accès logis, which is an important policy change that affected a lot of potential social housing projects. Um, but I know that you, Amy, deal with these things often here in, in Park Extension, like on a daily level, but also in terms of thinking about uh, how to build, you know, as Faiz was talking about, what are people or how are people organizing? Absolutely. So, I mean, I guess one thing I would say is that while there's definitely things about Bill 31, you know, that are definitely like deeply terrifying and a very like clear attack on tenant rights, it isn't, it's part of a much bigger process, right? Like Bill 31 is very much rooted in um, a bigger approach, but not just by the CAC, but by pretty much every single ruling political party on all level of government um, to sort of to cater uh, to the interests of 
real estate developers and the private sector um, at the expense of tenants. Um, you mentioned the cut of the cutback of accès logis. That's obviously one very clear manifestation of it, and one that has serious impacts here in Park X. Um, mm. It threatens a lot of um, some a lot of the victories we've been able to win through like tenant mobilization in the last few years, in the sense that. There have been sites that tenants have won and that are now sitting empty because the funding no longer exists to develop them. Um, another part of Bill 31 that people don't really talk mm -hmm. about, um, but are, is every bit as worrisome, is that they've gone and replaced, you know, wording around um, giving money for social housing to housing more generally. Mm -hmm. And they're calling for um, HLMs that are sitting empty, that they can be sold um, and replaced with so-called affordable housing, which isn't affordable to most people. Um, this again isn't new, but there's a very clear effort here to sort of try to profit off the housing crisis um, and use it as a means uh, to fund private interests. Um, if there's anything that has maybe been useful about Bill 31, um, is I think like it's very clearly hit a nerve for a lot of people. Both Faiz and Ubel talked about it in the sense of it, it risks changing the face of Montreal as we know it. And I think it resonates with people and has sparked a lot of mobilization. I think it very, it, it, show, it kind of very clearly like shows the CAC for who they are and highlights their contempt um, for working class tenants. Um, and I do think it's very important uh, to continue um, to push the mobilization forward and, you know, not and fight not only for Bill 31 to be repealed, but also for broader goals such as, you know, a rent freeze, such as the decommodification of housing and, the, you know, so, sorry, I just wanted to draw out one uh, very important point you mentioned, Amy, which was tangible organizing victories here in Park X. And I just think that there will, there will be people listening who maybe haven't heard about those. Could you just maybe hi highlight one example of that sort of long-term community organizing that you've been involved in here at through CAPE? And maybe a very clear example would maybe be the recent um, the victory around 700 Jari West. It's a for, it's a former garage station. It's a like a garage located in the north of the neighborhood that a cooperative that was led by and for like tenants of the neighborhood had been fighting for for 10 years. Um, it was sold to a private developer um, in 2020 who wanted to then turn around and build luxury apartments on the site. Um, Park X tenants kind of mobilized mm -hmm. around it, mm -hmm. actually succeeded in blocking the luxury apartment development project, which is the first time that's happened in the neighborhood to date, um, but kept the struggle, struggle going until the city actually ended up acquiring that site. Um, we're continuing to fight to make sure that it ends up being like a project that's led by, you know, by the neighborhood um, that is social community housing. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for highlighting that. The sort of um, daily support work that happens in a community group like CAPE, there's also casework, people fight facing eviction. And I wanted to turn to you, Gaurav, because I know that that's also related to a lot of the work you do at the Immigrant Workers Center. And, you know, being familiar with the organization, um, I'm, I'm actually on the board, so I, I, I'm following and supporting as much as I can. And I know that you're dealing with a lot of the daily pressures that new immigrants, refugee claimants, non-status people in park extension, but also beyond face. Could you maybe talk about the housing crisis as it relates to your work? Yes. Uh, what I'm observing in the parks, not in the parks, Laval, La Salle's, there's a lot of people who are residing over there. Thank you. Uh, yes. So the people who's migrated or in Canada are either they're refusee, non-status, status, are facing a lot of problem. This is facing a two problem, migration and as well as for the housing problems. Okay. Yeah, I observe that there's a, every day I receive a call or in-person complaint that my rent is without my permission has increased. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the people who are living here are mostly are working in the warehouses and they have a family. So they said... They increasing at fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred. So I'm earning at mostly two thousand dollars. So it's a beyond my capacity. So uh, I, warehouse work is very low paid. Yeah, and low we're talking paid. about like companies like Amazon or Dollarama. Yes, yes. Yeah, the, mostly people are working with Amazon, Dollarama, Good Foods, mm -hmm. or um, other uh, warehouses. So they said 
where we can live mm-hmm. so they cannot due to increasing of the rents they cannot feed their f- uh, family properly they are under depressions they have a they says any time tenants uh, landlord says go out from here if you not paying and they don't know law, law rule and regulations because mostly people are uh, illiterate they don't know about language barrier there's a lot of things so every day i receive a complaint against the landlord so this is they threatening us if we have we not pay the rent higher rent they will throw out from the houses so such kind of things regularly um, surrounding the in the park acts mostly lawal area where the indian people pakistani people so the bangladeshi people are living so uh, so they saying we cannot concentrate our immigration status we are concert, we cannot concentrate our uh, uh, refugee status we cannot concentrate our um, we can say that um, housing problems so what should we can do so in this situation we try to associate with the cape and amicably settle some things so we are arranging the workshops so that the people can know about their rights about the housing rights so so mostly people are knowing that we regularly we are uh, going um, 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 organizing a rally mm-hmm. uh, also for the bill 31 so such kind of things we are doing so that the people can gather and make understand well one of the few mechanisms that tenants have which often is not super supportive of tenant rights yes. is yes. uh to access the tribunal for housing yes. and On top of that you're working with a community where there's a lot of language barriers. Yeah, but a lot of language barriers. So that's why they not directly come to the uh, go to the courts. They don't know how to uh, approach the government. So like a cape. So it's a mediator. So they mm-hmm. uh, we ascended sure. our clients to the cape. Mm-hmm. So member to the cape so cape can help to them so resolve the problem. But these these little bit things not a solution so my observation is we sh- all the peoples not on the park acts laval montreal levels so come together in a one umbrella and make a one huge campaign to to the uh, government so that we are people getting a low incomes and giving a higher rents it's 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 a it's against our rights yeah so yeah. because international human rights says you have a right to live you have a right Respect. to feed you have a right for land or you have a right to uh, house so we the lack of these things we are uh, we are under depression so and that's one thing you uh, go ahead amy oh it's just one thing that you've mentioned a lot gorav in our conversations and also in public presentations yeah. that you have talked about the effects on mental health of yes, yes, refugee yes. claimants in relation to housing crisis yes it's a, it's not a story particular one one person it's a particular mostly people's who are because they are there and one more thing so i i also receive a complaint that we are leave, we are paying a fair, $1400 and we have a lot of problem in our house so due to that reason also they ha- they ha- they are not uh, feeling well and their health is go down day by day so the tenant uh, uh, landlord are not listening about yeah. this either there is a cockroach either there is mosquitoes either there is no water good water coming mm-hmm. the hydrocubics <laughs> bills are too much high mm-hmm. so apart from this either they pay these these things or either they pay for the medical bills or either they pay for what they, where they can go yeah. so due to that is then physically mentally got it going day by day towns you know the in the park acts there's a lot of uh, these things happening in the park acts mostly people are coming try to commit a suicide yeah. a lot of people you can heard in the new facebooks and news channels so i think often what i really appreciate about the work that you have all been addressing in this community radio broadcast is when we hear about bill 31 often in mainstream media presentations we hear like a response from a government official or maybe you know uh, an opposition politician but it's very rare to hear community voices so thank you so much all for being here to talk about this reality um i wanted to talk just a little bit about the federal government and uh, specifically 
Um, you know, there's a point that I think not a lot of people remember, which is under liberals and conservatives, they've been sort of like playing this game around housing, uh, around electoral cycles. But in the mid-1990s, the federal liberals actually cut, um, in the context of the International Monetary Fund's structural adjustment proposals for Canada, they actually cut funding for co-op uh, housing on a federal level. Uh, and, you know, most housing activists have really clearly stated that the proposed housing solutions from Trudeau's liberals are basically nothing uh, in terms of meeting the moment. So maybe, Drew, if you have any reflections about this. I think the basic fact is that the federal liberals uh, and the federal conservatives have consistently cut housing um, funding. And obviously a big part of what made housing like what made it possible to have options in the past, uh, you know, in, in, in Canada and Canadian cities was the significant investment in social housing um, and and the investment in, you know, creating an, a, a sort of an abundance of housing. Um, and, and a lot of that's been, and, and co-op housing was obviously a big part of that mix. Um, and so, so yeah, the, the kind of consistent cuts over the last really 30 years um, that, you know, other than a, a small blip during the um, sort of 2008 crisis, um, you've seen a real, you've seen like consistently um, not meeting the moment. And, and, and what, what's happened is you've created a sort of backlog uh, of housing where, where housing has be, because there's no bottom, to, there's no sort of safety net in the housing market um, where the low end of sort of, you know, mm -hmm. low income renters yeah. and so on are able to access housing everybody's being sort of driven into either homelessness or crunching into smaller spaces or f going further and further away uh, from the cities where their jobs are uh, in order to be able to afford to have a place to stay. Uh, and that's obviously reached a total crisis point where there's a lot of anger. Um, and so, of course, the conservatives are capitalizing on that, but, but without without actually doing anything um and if anything the policies they're proposing are going to make the problem worse um and the liberals are sort of doing what what they do and i think the the fundamental issue um on the federal scene is that you have two parties the the conservatives and the liberals who are funded by the finance sector who are funded by um the sort of real estate investment sector um and by landlords and in a lot of cases, they are actually landlords. Like the actual MPs are, are landlords, including Pierre Polyev. Um, and so you end up with a situation where um, everything that that they do to address the housing crisis is within what's acceptable to those sectors. Um, and so um, you end up with a lot of these sort of false solutions where the idea is that you're going to uh, increased supply and somehow lower prices, but at the same time, <laughs> like the the whole premise of your policy is to keep making money for this small number of people and small number of investors. And one of the key sort of mechanisms that just totally hasn't been addressed by anybody. And sorry, I should say the NDP uh, maybe isn't as backed by those sectors, the finance, real estate, and so on, but they they appear to aspire to be. <laughs> and so that's the that's the problem at the federal level is that they're trying to to do these like very meager sort of uh, measures, the, the things they're even putting forward that they're not even getting passed because they're, you know, are like, you know, tax cuts on, on construction by private developers. Uh, it's not a massive investment in social housing, which is obviously, I think this is sort of elephant in the room. Like nobody's saying, oh, we actually just need to have a massive, uh, you know, multi tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars investment in social housing the way that we did when, housing was actually accessible and affordable. Um, and, and I think that comes down to social movements. Like you have to have um, movements on the ground that are independent of these parties, certainly independent of the sort of prevailing homeowner based uh, supposed consensus in the media uh, and, and independent of, um, of the housing as a commodity, which is, which is the sort of basic premise of, of all the so-called solutions that are happening. Um, and so there's a huge gap there um, and it's being filled emotionally by the conservatives in the sense that they're reflecting the emotions of like what it's like to live in a housing crisis and not be able to access housing, but they're not doing any of the things that could actually 
result in things being any different. Um, and so, yeah, I think I just wanted to note one other thing, which is that the real estate investment trusts are this mechanism where basically uh, big pools of money, um, you know, investors can like put in a, put in money into these real estate investment trusts and the investment trusts don't pay some corporate taxes uh, and as a result have a sort of advantage in the market. But they basically are, um, their business model is buy up property, raise the rents, lower the services, lower the like maintenance and make more profits as a result. And so they're leading um, these, these sort of like faceless mechanisms are, even if they're not owning the majority of the housing, they're, they're sort of setting the tone for all the other landlords uh, to do the same thing, raise, raise prices and, 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 and sort of cut maintenance basically um, so that people live, people pay more to live in worse conditions. And I think that this is, this is the sort of fundamental issue uh, on the federal level um, that we're dealing with. None of this is being addressed. And, and, and I think, yeah, it's really up to social movements uh, to, to, to bring the fight to the federal level and propose really clearly uh, what's missing from the scene.
John Clark is joining us. And well, first of all, hi, John, and thank you for being with us. Could you just introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, um, you you sort of done it. I'm a long-standing member of the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. I was an organizer for 28 years, and uh, uh, presently I'm uh, doing various things, but involved in a campaign against gentrification in the downtown east portion of uh, of Toronto, and I'm also doing a bit of. Uh, teaching at uh, York University in the capacity of Packer Visitor in Social Justice. Though I didn't even go to university, they've, uh, uh, they've taken me on on the basis of experiential equivalency based on the stuff that I've been doing at OCAP. So that's been a very exciting development and trying to develop some sort of educational component uh, based, on the, uh, based on the work that I've done over the years. So there's a lot of layers we could get into, but Maybe we can start with what you mentioned you're involved in right now, which is campaigning against gentrification. So this term means a lot of things, um, but basically the displacement of low-income and working-class communities that's happening in many cities. So I think it's interesting for people to hear about this. You're talking about Toronto, but obviously across North America, Turtle Island, that's taking place. Um, So... I, I, I maybe you could talk a bit about the campaign, but also, you know, I think it's always, as mentioned in the intro, interesting to hear your perspective of trying to translate sort of an awareness of what's happening into an actual campaign that involves people who are affected. So I think I'd love to hear a bit about that. Right, right. Okay. Well, uh, as is perhaps best, I'll, I'll start at the uh, the more abstract general level and then work down to the uh, specifics of the campaign that we're involved in. So uh, the backdrop to the thing is that Toronto is, I think, a particularly critical site of struggle in Canada with regards to an agenda that could loosely be described as the commodification of housing. Uh, it, it's reached uh, absolutely extreme levels. Um, you have the suppression of any kind of element of social housing today. Um, and you have an unbridled, largely unregulated, uh, anarchic in a thoroughly bad sense, um, uh, pursuit of, 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 of profit based on the creation of a willful and unsustainable oversupply of upscale housing um, and uh, an, absolutely, an absolute denial of any uh, right to housing on the part of ordinary working class people, even as homeowners, people are hard pressed at the moment. Uh, But in terms of the rental sector, it's becoming increasingly unaffordable. It's producing a crisis of outright destitution, uh, as well as in terms of the, the climate, urban planning kind of element, the thing is complete madness it's it's creating a, a an appalling situation and it's linked to the whole strategy um of uh, of creating greater and greater levels of inequality in society of ramping up uh levels of uh, of exploitation of removing social supports of increasing the level of of, of exploitation of working class people um it's uh, it's 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 redefining uh city space uh, along the lines of what is sometimes referred to as the neoliberal city so so that's what we're up against, uh, I think. And what is particularly, it's come to a head in the downtown east portion of Toronto, which is a neighbourhood that that was a, a very interesting neighbourhood. Uh, it was uh, in the early 1800s, uh, the, it was the, the living quarters of the upper Canadian uh, uh, family compact. So some of the most powerful people in the colony uh, actually resided in that area. In the 1840s, what you start to see is an infusion of people coming into the neighbourhood seeking refuge and survival because of the Great Famine in Ireland. And so you start to see uh, poor working class people coming into the neighbourhood and the rich 
retreated in horror in the face of this uh, of this uh, presence of the lower orders. And uh, ever since, in one way or another, the neighbourhood has been a contested site. For a long period, it was a it, there was a substantial industry, uh, high high levels of employment. Uh, there was a process of deindustrialization. It becomes uh, a, an extremely poor neighbourhood, and then in the sixties, you start to see a process of gentrification taking place, and uh, that has gone on to a greater or lesser degree ever since, and now reached the most extreme levels with a profusion of condominiums and such like. It's leading to uh, the driving out of services, the closing down of homeless shelters, uh, the displacing of low-income tenants, um, the uh, replacement of all the shops and services and needs that reflect a low-income community with upscale, boutique kind of bullshit. And uh, it's it's created a crisis. Now... uh, uh, an entity, a developer by the name of Kingset Capital, has outbid the city for a vacant uh, lot uh, right at the corner of Dundas and Sherburn, in the very, very heart of the neighbourhood. And so their goal is to create a 47-storey luxury condominium, which is part of just a, an infusion of these things that is spreading all the way along Dundas Street, what we might call the Dundas Corridor, coming from Young Street right out into the into the downtown east, involving billions of dollars of investment. So in some ways, this particular condominium represents not just a symbol, but a line in the sand. Uh, if, if they can build a luxury tower there, right where some of the most important services are, right in the heart of the poor community, it's going to gut it. So uh, an organisation called 230 Fightback, because the the vacant lot is at 214 to 230 uh, Sherburn, um, uh, w- has been formed and we've started to campaign, mobilise and take up a struggle uh, around these questions. We've, we've, we've taken delegations to Kingset Capital, we've gone to City Hall, uh, we now have a situation where Olivia Chow is Mayor of the City, so you have an NDP uh, avowed progressive uh, uh, Mayor, uh, and so the thing is going to play out in in really quite fascinating and important uh, ways, and it's going to be a very very vital struggle. So that's essentially what uh, what uh, we're involved in here. So there's a lot of layers to what you said. One point that I have noticed hasn't been deeply explored in a lot of conversations is how the pol- how the proliferation of condo towers has a very detrimental effect on people's health in terms of climate. Um, I want to get into some of the details about the campaign that you've highlighted, but can you just underline that point and just talk about about that a bit? Well, I mean, I think we have a completely, I mean, in terms of developing uh, urban space, um, we have really uh, an agenda now being pursued where developers are building luxury condominiums um not not always i mean sometimes there's a lot of rental situations where people move into condominiums but but an oversupply of uh, of of upscale housing uh it's very dense it's very unplanned it's not coordinated there's no thought of integrating communities uh, whole populations of low income people are are dispersed out to whatever arrangements they can make in the suburbs or beyond. Um, There's no thought given to the implications of such a vast building project in terms of a sustainable city, uh, impact on the environment, uh, the physical infrastructure, the transportation systems. Uh, I mean, I happen to live out in the east end of, uh, of Toronto, in the eastern suburbs in what people know Toronto, Scarborough, and I live close to the Scarborough town centre. Uh, we have a situation where the condominiums that are going up are just one after the other. Um, the physical infrastructure isn't there to deal with it. The transportation isn't there to deal with it. The light rapid transport system that exists is being closed with no replacement for six years. And, and it's just it's just a madness of unplay and 
unplanned, reckless greed. Uh, so from any standpoint, in terms of equitable societies, climate impacts, uh, realistic urban planning, it, 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 it's madness. It's the, it's the urban planning equivalent of melting the polar ice caps. So you mentioned um, the climate impacts. And so just, just to underline that a bit more, uh, it's very important. Um, angle from which to critique this massive condo expansion. This creates um, heat heat domes within the city and sort of like amplifies um, the effects of climate change. Yes, I mean, I think it does. Uh, I mean, I clearly, clearly the whole point about it is, is that, I, I mean, the whole thing, it makes a mockery of urban planning. I mean, what is needed is to sit down and say, what are these buildings that we're that we're that we're throwing up? What are their climate implications? How do we integrate them? How do we render the process sustainable? How long will these things will be standing? Uh, how much resources are being put into building them? Could there be a better way of allocating resources, of using energy, of building buildings that 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 uh, that are uh, as 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 uh, easy on the climate as possible. Of, of, I mean, how do we actually, I mean, in all areas of life, whether it's production, consumption, urban planning, there's an absolute need to think in terms of sustainability. And I, I guarantee that as the, as the developers build these massive condo towers in Toronto and as they build uh, unsustainable housing out in Toronto's, the area of the green belt around Toronto, uh, the last thing that they're considering is the environmental implications or the long-term implications. It's just all based on immediate short-term profit. So this focus on like underlining the organizational chaos of like massive condo proliferation and obviously that rendering, as you mentioned, John, a lot of like essential community organizations or services uh, displacing those services and the people that are supported or part of those community spaces. Um, I think often when, you know, sort of real estate development as a broader sort of reality is discussed in a lot of mainstream media circles, it's not often portrayed in the chaotic um, framework, which is very accurate that you're describing it. I just wanted to just hear a bit more your thoughts about the importance of underlining how little like sort of thoughtful and human environment centered planning is going on when all these huge towers are built because i think there's a, an assumption that there's an organizational plan when it comes to um, mainstream perspectives or even like mainstream news reporting on this they might look at some unfortunate circumstances but not like portray the situation as the chaos that you're describing it? Well, I, I mean, I think what's happening with housing and the commodification of housing is emblematic of what's happening on, on a broader scale. I mean, it's exactly the same process as continuing to... I mean, I read right now that over in Britain, uh, Rishi Sunak has just announced that they're going to max out North Sea oil. Uh, they're just going to they're going to take all the oil they can out and, and set it out into the, the environment and damn the consequences because it will be immediately profitable. And exactly the same uh, form of activity is going on with regards to uh, with regards to uh, the provision of housing. Uh, it's a social need. Housing is a very basic social need, but it's being pursued as a commodity on an enormous uh, on an enormous scale. And that is fundamentally destructive and, 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 and fundamentally harmful. I mean, the last thing I am is a is a is a, a connoisseur of architecture and I don't want to try to I don't want to try to uh, I don't want to try to fake uh, credentials here. But uh, you look at these buildings that have gone up and, and many of them are sort of quite have this sort of quirky architectural thing to them you know they're asymmetrical they're irregular they, they have these different things and, and and what's clear is that some developer has some notion of marketing this product uh and the product is is is, is a a a, a high-rise building that provides primarily luxury housing and so Everything goes into what will this look like? Uh, who will it attract? Who will buy it? Uh, 
What uh, gimmicks and fads and luxury items can we attach to it? There's no thought given whatsoever to what will this do to the surrounding community? What are the implications long term? Uh, where will this building be 30, 40 years from now? Uh, what does it mean for the way we're developing this vital urban space? What does it mean about the communities? What does it mean about the natural world? Uh, none of this is of any significant importance. It's all just a, a commodity for sale. Just like a, just like any other commodity, and and as such, it's it's a, it's just not a sustainable. In fact, it's a harmful. It's a destructive process. So when we think about what you're describing, um, this is playing out in a number of cities uh, in Quebec, Montreal, where I live. The leader of the right wing governing coalition avenue at the Quebec has said, "Oh well, I mean." paraphrasing but the rental prices in Montreal are not comparable to Toronto and New York City so this means that we're behind somehow like that it's progressive to have high rents this was sort of the logic which I am not lack I don't know what word to use but this was the discourse when he was talking about the implementation of this new bill to try to cancel lease transfer as a practice of solidarity between tenants um we can think about a lot of cities, I mean, uh, all around the world where gentrification is happening, you know, and I've been talking to friends from Nairobi to Berlin to Johannesburg. Uh, there's this process of the commodification of housing that you're describing. Uh, now, there's this broader critique, and you talked about 230 fight back. Um, and so this campaign is very interesting in the sense that I mean obviously it's important for all the reasons we've been discussing but can you talk a bit about that idea of the intervention and how like you know obviously this is one lot but through that campaign I, I would assume you're aiming to speak about a lot of intersecting issues and bring this this to the forefront yeah I mean I I've been thinking a lot and writing somewhat recently about climate change about and, and the broader environmental crisis that exists and uh, I, I do this from a from the perspective of a, of a, of a socialist analysis I, I, I mean I I don't think that capitalism can take humanity forward uh, I think we're literally in that situation um, and so when it comes to the fact that the polar ice caps are, uh, are, are melting, when it comes to the fact that, that the, the, the forests are on fire and the cities are choking and what, whatever else, uh, that's, I think, an indication of uh, the implications of where capitalism is taking us, which is really, uh, you know, a threat to existence. Um, but it also raises the question of how do we actually engage that? How do we actually fight that? How do we resist that? And the same applies with regards to housing and urban planning and trying to challenge the commodification of housing. I mean, I, I don't believe that we're going to, under capitalism, create a situation where we're going to have properly functioning, sustainable, healthy, just uh, urban space. I think we're going to be fighting uh, an exploitative and essentially irrational system as long as, as capitalism exists. But that doesn't mean that that we can say one day we'll have a better society, but right now we just have to sit here and take whatever filth is thrown at us. I mean, obviously we have to fight back and we have to make a difference. We have to stop uh, polluters polluting. We have to stop emissions going. We have to ensure that when the effects of climate change hit us, that there are systems in place to deal with the impacts of those things, healthcare, uh, emergency provision, those kinds of things. We have to fight for survival needs. Well, in exactly the same way right now, uh, the, the commodification of housing is reaching crisis levels that is that, that are displacing uh, poor working class communities. And that means the only possibility is, is 
to think in terms of what now immediately we can do to put limits on that, to impose defeats on them, to win victories, to prevent condo towers going up, to win social housing at a given location, to actually make a difference. And we've got to think about how we intervene in that way. And primarily, it's going to be one of social mobilisation. Right? Primarily, it's going to be that those communities have got to be mobilised and they've got to mobilise seriously. Um, I don't think we can for, I mentioned uh, Olivia Chow, um, I don't want to, uh, you know, engage in a gratuitous attack on someone who's only been in the mayor's office for a, for a matter of days. But I think it would be naive to imagine that we've elected an NDP avowedly progressive mayor and that's it, the developers are in trouble, there's going to be this new era of social justice. That the, it's not going to happen that way. Uh, the, the 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 sort of the left opposition notion within Toronto City Council that has emerged over the last few years is that a victory is when you convince the developers to put a few more additional uh, not really affordable housing units within their latest luxury condominium development or maybe add a bit of green space or, or whatever else. But the notion that you could actually build an alternative, that you could build social housing, that you could reverse uh, the agenda or even stop the agenda that's coming down is, is just totally alien. It doesn't exist. And I don't expect it to come independently from Olivia Chow. Uh, so that means the only alternative is actually social mobilisation. And it comes down to very concrete questions like what's going to happen at the corner of Dundas and Sherburn? Is this developer going to put up a 47 storey luxury obscenity or is there going to be social housing that serves the needs of the community where people can live, survive, uh, where they can live decent lives under decent conditions? Uh, and that can only be decided in struggle. So I think the this kind of stuff that's coming from uh, from 230 fight back, the kind of incredible organising that's happening amongst tenants where they're fighting rent evictions, where they're fighting impossible rents, where they're struggling for their rights, uh, the kind of fights that's being taken up even at the level of where people have been forced to live in encampments because they're, they're unhoused. Um, uh, you see people organising to defend those places. You know, in 1999 in Allen Gardens, which is right in the downtown, East, we put up a defiant three-day encampment. Today, people are living in tents in Allen Gardens on a scale that far exceeds anything that we were able to do in 1999, just as a matter of elemental survival, because there is nowhere else for them to go, because the crisis is so much worse than it was at the turn of the century. And, um, and, and, and they're going to try and clear that. And there's going to be a struggle around that. And those are the kind of fights. Those are the kind of immediate, practical, vital fights that are going to have to be uh, going to have to be taken up. And we're going to have to find a way to go on the defensive. Uh, I've seen an estimate that in Toronto there are uh, 65,000 empty condo units. Why don't we have a movement that's strong enough to start taking those places? Why don't we have a movement that's strong enough to start putting families into those places? Uh, if we were able to do that on a scale that was big and powerful enough, we'd have something to bargain with. We'd, have, we'd be in a position to say, OK, you build social housing and you build it now. I mean, I, mean, I, I think there is the possibility of uh, resistance. I, I don't think we can have the perspective that one day we'll have a better society. We've got to start fighting for that society in practical terms right now.